Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Pluto Nash goes back to the future of Troubled Productions. Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly silly looking yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and I'm also a clone of Adam Thomas. We're even wearing the same suit, which is a furry suit. And I am Thomas Mariani, and Adam, I've got to get you back to the future. It's about your furry suit. Yeah, I found it in the gutter. It's actually just... (laughs) Just a raccoon skin. Or a possum. I don't know. I don't know my dog breeds. <laughs> Either way, very, very big version of whatever that thing is. Uh, but welcome, everybody, to the Double Edge Devil Bill, in which uh, every week, Adam and I cover a good and a bad feature that we picked at the end of the previous episode. Um, and uh, we, you know, for this week, uh, we are doing a topic uh, in honor of Black Panther Wakanda Forever has just come out. Um, we're recording this before its official release, released on the Thursday night of its release, so we haven't seen it yet. Because of that movie, we are doing another uh, edition of Troubled Productions as part of Revember, where we're revisiting topics we've done previously. And uh, we did this uh, one uh, several episodes ago, where we talked about The Evil Within and Fifty Shades of Grey. And uh, both of those had like very troubled productions. And Black Panther Wakanda Forever, obviously, is no exception given in production when your main star dies and COVID happens and one of your other stars allegedly has issues with getting vaccinated and also has, like, a massive incident on set that gets her injured that gets, like, several months of delays on production as well. Uh, Ryan Coogler went through the ringer to get that movie made. Yeah, I'd say he did. And the fact that even, you know, early reviews, you know, I don't really read any of the spoilers, but the fact that it's even getting good reviews uh, is, uh, you know, says something, that he was able to make something competent and perhaps really good out of all that. Yeah, I mean, especially considering with, like, the whole Chadwick Boseman of it all, I still remember that announcement, I learned of it while we were recording an episode. I was, like, literally wrapping up a show, and Adam, like, stopped the presses, literally, (laughs) and was just like, Chadwick Boseman died. And I was like, it's one of the few moments where I have been completely speechless. Regular listeners would be shocked by this. I had to finally just, like, shut the fuck up for a second. Yeah, I remember that, too. Yeah, it was pretty fucking crazy. It was one of those, just like, wait... What? Because you had heard the rumors, and you saw how skinny he got, but she didn't really know if it was for a role, or if it was really something. You know, there's a lot of people teasing him and all that, and then once you find out actually what he went through, it's like, oh, man. And then all that was going on throughout most of his Black Panther tenure. Like, since, like, 2017 or something like that that he's been suffering. It was such a shame, and it was such a massive, like, blow that that happened. And yeah, it's a miracle that, you know, they managed to get a movie done at all with all those odds facing them. Uh, so, in celebration of that, we're doing a similar thing with Trouble Productions, where we have two movies that have had um, infamous sort of production problems and delays, which, as a movie fan, I think you can agree, Adam, it's always like, as much as that's awful for someone who's actually in the middle of that production to go through, from the outside, it's fascinating to hear about, especially sort of like an after-the-fact, kind of like gossip dish kind of thing like oh this all this shit happened wow that's fascinating 
Oh yeah, definitely. And it also makes you kind of like when you know about it while it's going on, like before the movie comes out, it makes you even more like interested to see the movie. Kind of an interesting, fun little thing for us, the viewer. Yeah, <laughs> right. Know. That's true. Yes, uh, but it makes any bad movie have a bit more explanation to it. Any good movie seem like a miracle, even more than it already is. Yeah, I agree with you on the good ones and on the bad ones sometimes, but there are some that just, there's no excuse, and uh, that might be the case tonight. That's true. We might as well get into our uh, features for the evening. As I mentioned, we picked for this Trouble Productions episode the end of our last episode, and we'll be doing our picking for next week's episode uh, at the end of this one, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but we ended up, uh, at the end of our episode last time, picking uh, from my two bad picks, we ended up with The Adventures of Pluto Nash, and we end up uh, between your two good picks, and we got Back to the Future. So um, a bit of a, a breadth and quality, as it were. Maybe one of the bigger ones we've ever done <laughs> with this show <laughs> in terms of good to bad, the gulf between these two. I think there, there's a pretty big, wide <laughs> gulf between them. And similar genres, nonetheless, though. Sci-fi comedies. That's true. That is very true. Um, and we might as well go ahead and start with uh, the bad one here. Uh, the Adventures of Pluto Nash. Two hundred thirty-nine thousand miles from Earth, beyond the reach of the law, lies a forbidden world where fantasy is for sale. Welcome to Club Pluto. And crime. Every lowlife in town is looking the wacky. No! Is king. Hey, everybody. Pluto. Pluto Nash, the Pluto Nash. It is a pleasure to meet me. You're absolutely right. From the far side of adventure comes a hero for the future. Eddie Murphy is Pluto Nash. So The Adventures of Pluto Nash uh, came out August 16th, 2002, but um, this movie was in production for a solid, like, 20 years or so. The original script was in development starting in 1983, when it was originally conceived as more of, like, a sincere sort of space opera movie in the vein of, like, a Star Wars and stuff. And then through a lot of different stages of development, it ended up becoming an Eddie Murphy vehicle that is ostensibly a sci-fi comedy, though... I don't know if Eddie Murphy is as interested in it being a comedy necessarily. This kind of feels like, despite the fact that it was post Night Professor, it's still this feels more in the line of like his weird early '90s period where he was like literally saying, "I don't want to do comedy." Like on Beverly Hills Cop Three, he literally said, "Like I don't think Axel is interested in being funny anymore." It feels like that kind of level of performance from Eddie in this one. I mean, it compared to a, a comedy performance, yes, but I don't even know that he was even giving that much into it. I mean, clearly he didn't want to be here. Everybody else around him, not everybody else, but there's a couple other people who are trying to be funny and trying to spice it up and, you know, make it funny. I don't think any of it uh, works, but yeah, it's just when your lead star uh, clearly doesn't give a shit, then it, a good movie that never makes. No, yeah, and even the director Ron Underwood was also not as interested. A director of great movies like City Slickers and Tremors um, came onto this project and even said as much that, like Eddie Murphy, he was mainly interested in staying on because of the money, because this is a $100 million movie. 
is the budget for this. And it ended up making $7 million at the box office, which is still one of the larger examples of like box office disaster flop levels. And it probably says a lot about, given the production, like it ended shooting in 2000, and then the editor, uh, Alan Haim, spent like so many months trying to make it work with whatever footage was there. And he's like, no, we have to do extensive reshoots. So reshoots started happening. And that's why certain characters kind of like reappear and disappear out of the plot at several different points. And it just came out to uh, being a massive flop. And honestly, like I hadn't seen this before I picked it for the show because this was like a joke. The funniest thing about the movie was just it was a massive disaster that people would, like, make jokes about. And, um, we've done many very bad movies for this show. But I don't think we've ever covered a movie quite as lifeless as this one. There is no life in this movie. There is no pulse. It is just, like, dead on arrival. Yeah, I I think I gotta agree with that. Um, I also hadn't seen it before this watch, but, but like you, I knew enough about it as sort of infamous as this huge disaster and just such a huge, you know, almost career killer for Murphy and just this horrible, horrible thing. Uh, so, you know, when you, that's why I was like, all right, I'll watch it. Fuck it. Uh, I hate that I did. Um <laughs> I watched this late last night because I woke up and couldn't sleep. So I'm like, all right, I'll put this on. If anything, it'll probably knock me out and then I can finish it tomorrow. I end up watching the whole goddamn thing. And uh, I knew pretty much right off the bat that I was in trouble. With the whole Jay Moore bit and uh, all that, I'm like, oh, no. And here's Cousin Polly. <laughs> oh, fuck. Yeah, I had a very similar reaction to the moment Jay Moore shows up initially as this entertainer who is friends with Murphy. Which, the, the movie has this weird thing where it's both extremely exposition-heavy, but also not very clear about certain dynamics between characters. Because I got the sense that Eddie Murphy and Jay Moore were friends, but initially I'm like, oh, is he like a talent agent? Does he have some kind of experience in the entertainment world? No, he's a smuggler who just got out of prison. But then he wants to become a nightclub owner. And all this stuff that with initially occurs in, like, 2080 when the movie starts. And then, like, these gangsters led by Burt Young come in or just like hey you owe us a lot of money jay moore you better give it to us now he's like hey how about i pay it off and i'll take over the club and it'll be great seven years later he has this rocking nightclub on the moon by the way the movie takes place on the moon we didn't mention that there's like this movie it's like the, like the weird hat rack thing i've mentioned before where it's like there's hat and a hat this movie is a hat rack but it's a doll ass hat rack it's just like a hat rack full of the exact same hat and it's a gray like bowler <laughs> Yeah. You know, the thing is, yes, it takes place on the moon. I got a lot of Super Mario vibes, Super Mario Brothers vibes with sort of the set design and stuff in this. This feels like the last leg of like one of those sort of like big studio, like high concept movies where like the entire backlot is remade in the vision of Pluto Nash. This maybe killed that kind of movie, honestly. Honestly, because it looks like a backlot too, the whole time. Like none of this looks real to what it's supposed to be. Like it just, it literally looks like a set. It looks like Universal City Walk without much maintenance put onto it, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's that's fair. I've been to City Walk a couple times. I'd, I'd rather go there than here anytime. I love sci-fi movies and all that stuff, but just there's so many stupid decisions that they make in bad sci-fi or like this movie. It's like, well, it's the future, so of course this would exist. You're like, wait a minute. Like the androids, uh, you know, Randy Quaid's whole deal, and then the choreographed dancing all the time 
and the real guns that are actually like ray guns. You're like, what is happening here? Like, this is just dumb decisions just because it's the future so these things have to exist and it always takes me out of the movie it doesn't make sense in the world that they're trying to build like with the everything in this was hugely fantastical okay but they try to keep it grounded and down to earth where it's like this nightclub and they're actually serving beer and martinis and you know it's gambling only allowed on a certain part of the moon and there's supposed to be corporate espionage and all this but hey here's john cleese as a car computer and you're like, what the fuck is this? Like, it's just, it's just so all over the place. Part of me feels like this was almost like originally conceived as like more of a like crime comedy thing that involved like people in nightclubs and casinos and shit. And it's like, oh fuck, I gotta sell this better. Oh, Star Wars is a thing. Uh, it's on the moon. Let me find replace Vegas with moon <laughs> and then make that work. Like that's what it feels like. Well, um, I think the original idea was it was for it to be like this big space opera sort of movie. Right, but I'm saying just what it feels like. What it feels like to me is that. Well, because they wrote it in what, like 80-something? Yeah, they originally had the script in 83, and then it was like a turnover for 20 years. So just anything that came out that hit sci-fi between then, they were like, oh, we got to adapt to that. Oh, we got to adapt to that. So there's remnants of all these little things in this movie that do not connect in any way, but they kept them in because it's in the script. Yeah, it, and it definitely feels also like a movie that was in such turnaround that, like I mentioned, the whole thing with like it being so over-edited and reshoots happening and stuff like that, certain people appear and disappear at wild different lengths. Like, there's a cameo from Alec Baldwin that oh, I'm sure maybe was originally supposed to be a larger role, but he's in like one scene on like a, like a news report, and then later on they explain away that like, oh yeah, he got launched into orbit by our real villain at a certain point. To the, at a time where like I totally forgot what that character's name was. And they mentioned just like oh, Bugsy Malone or whatever. I'm like, who the fuck is this? Who are you talking about? Yeah, like Marcioni or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Who? Wait, you know for a fact. Well, because guaranteed he was going to be the villain. Right. I'm sure. But, you know, then he was like, no, fuck that. It got out of it. And once it got away from him, they're like, ah, it's just a clone. I'm like, oh, this is so stupid. Poor James Rebhorn, one of my favorite character actors, R.I.P. to a real one, has to deliver this terrible monologue But remember when you got your appendix removed in prison? And it's literally just a giant exposition monologue about, like, we took some of your appendix and we made you a clone, and that clone was originally supposed to be a puppet. But then the puppet was like, oh, no, I don't want to be a puppet. I want to be an actual gangster man. I want to be a real gangster! <laughs> Probably would have been better than certain recent versions of Pinocchio. Um, but, like, that in of itself like it's this bad exposition monologue but it's like that sounds like a way more interesting fucking sci-fi crime movie than this bullshit that you're giving us where it's like the other eddie murphy and rosario dawson poor rosario dawson early in her career this is like the same year as men in black 2 so it's like she's the queen of really bad sci-fi comedies with really bad production problems Mm -hmm. and really awkward romance angles that don't work yeah, I mean, but this one's even weirder. Where like they, oh, this is worse. Yeah, they establish that she is the daughter of one of his prison buddies, who is he's like helping out by like, hey, you can be a waitress on the moon. That's fine, so you can get back home or earn enough money to get back home. They they also like go back and forth on like the romance angle, where it's like there's points where it gets too close, and there are other points where it's like, no, we're just buddies. And like especially by the end, just like, yeah, we're buddies. You're singing anyway. That's it. It's like what? Either commit to what your awful thing was gonna be, or don't even bring it up. <laughs> Right, and there's also hints to that maybe, just maybe, like, she's conning him, or at least that's what you kind of want to believe, because it's so dumb, but, like, maybe she's in on it, or she's bad, or something, and it's just, no, 
No, it's just a completely do-nothing one-sided character. I mean, I only would have thought that just because, like, that would have been interesting. Well, that's what I'm saying. I guess it might have been wishful thinking on my part. Right, because you would have thought, like, oh, this character has, like, some kind of angle behind her, as opposed to, I'm just a girl lost on the moon, and I need to get my way back home. It's like, that's it. We're going to talk about my butt a couple times. Oh, God. And then I'm going to do a really, really bad lip syncing. To the worst song ever. (laughs) Like, the ending song. Like, we're gonna get crunk tonight, everything's alright tonight, because it's the end of the movie, so everything's alright, that's how you know, the song says. Everything's alright, yep, and Randy Quaid becomes the manager. Let's not forget about Randy Quaid as, I forget even his name, starts with a G, I think, or Bruno, or something like that, it doesn't matter. He's the android bodyguard of Eddie Murphy's character, and he's he's the most consistent sort of sci-fi element that's here. But he's a super horny robot. Right. And that's just the weird thing is that, like, he is trying very hard with a very limited material, but also Quaid is not a very talented actor, so it just feels so desperate and cloying and just like, I, I, I hate this character. Every single time he does a bit, and every single time he does this weird movement thing, it's just like, this is so fucking grating. This might be one of the worst cinematic androids ever. It's really bad. The stupid buildings again, where he's an old model, so he can only go so fast. You know, he's got these two giant guns that he's expert with, but doesn't really do anything with. It's just, it, it, but like I said, then he's super horny for other robots. Including a robot who's literally designed just to be a maid that Eddie Murphy and also ben, And a French maid that bent over that implied that Eddie Murphy also banged. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then later on... Randy Quaid is like, oh, I, I don't think it's going to work between us because uh, I would need a converter to make that work, and it just doesn't feel the same. Get it? Get it? Get it? Well, yeah, I'm pausing for laughter. Everyone in the audience is laughing. Yeah. They're yeah. immediately just like, oh my god, I gotta see this fucking Pluto Nash. Wait a second, I, wait a second. I think he's <laughs> talking about, like, a condom. Like, when I bang my my partner. Oh, boy. <laughs> Who's also a French-made robot. <laughs> yeah, and I'm also Randy Quaid. Um, <laughs> Randy Quaid, if you're listening, uh, please stop. Get help. Yeah, help. get help, bro. Don't listen to this. Or do. I don't know. Maybe this will make you snap back. I, I don't know. I mean, it's better than nothing, which is what you're doing currently. But anyway. <laughs> right. uh, I mean, just... And this movie also has, like, such a weird influx of, like, these side characters who come in and out, like Joe Pantliano and the albino guy, uh, Peter Boyle as a sort of the older trustee guy that uh, Pluto Nash goes to occasionally, uh, Pam Greer as his mom. Mm-hmm. Who I think she's only, at this point, like, 8 to 12 years really older than him. Right. Um, and then, yeah, so she shows up for, like, literally a second and then is gone. Yeah, the thing about Ileana Douglas as the lady who runs that um, like plastic surgery area that you were talking about earlier, where it's like, oh, we're gonna get plastic surgery to make ourselves look different, and it's like, look, Eddie Murphy's all muscular, and Rosario Dawson, we're gonna give her bigger boobs and a bigger butt, and it's like, oh, mm-hmm. we're That's just so spending funny. a lot of time on this, yeah. Man, it's funny. You can't tell me it's not hilarious. So so great, and such great special effects, also as well. Wonder yes, no, every, well, everything about this movie works. I think that's what we're getting. Like, little do people know, the actual uh, bad movie is Back to the Future. Right, terrible film, as opposed to this genius yeah, film. film. Yeah, right. Right, this is this is a comedy classic. Right. Um, so I'm gonna, did you laugh once? No. I'm usually no? the guy who's like, I laughed like at a couple bits. I, right, I, I like, got no, a chuckle. Really no. Like, even Stan Helsing, you're like, I got a chuckle. Yeah, but this is like a no. This was like a comedy dead zone for me. <laughs> Nothing. I mean, there's nothing here. 
Also, does this movie actually look like it cost $100 million? No, that budget went into hiring new editors, new writers, new everything. And Eddie Murphy. Yeah, there's no way. Right, I think also a big part of that has to do with the fact that um, this is maybe one of the worst lit studio movies I've ever seen. Like, I talk about the lighting a lot, but this one, there's like no shadow in this fucking movie that takes place on the moon. (laughs) There's not a single bit of shadow, especially any of the indoor scenes are all like, extremely brightly lit like this is a fucking sitcom and it looks like so attractive. it makes every single bad detail about the sets as bright as possible yep and man does joey pants do some bad movies i mean he's a working actor and he uh, often works in dog shit i mean there's a lot of people like james redhorn i mentioned earlier Luis guzman popping up in this movie yeah the Luis guzman so funny <laughs> well he's he's his pluto's biggest fans he's really the audience surrogate because we're all pluto's biggest fans because we love yeah pluto. we all are and it's just that's like, our heart. such yeah, a great he's character a, he's a surrogate for our heart right for sure of course and like whenever pluto does all those like great memorable things that he does right like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, like, uh, he, he mentions that he was, he was in prison and he got his appendix removed. Yep. Yep. Right. Yep. Right. And then he, he also, uh, is friends with Jay Moore. Right. Uh, yes. who has way too many singing scenes in this movie. And then he's also, uh, was kind of raised by Peter Boyle. I think, I think that's what they're implying, even though his mom is alive and in the film. And then, uh, I mean, that's the thing, is that honestly, like, Pluto Nash is probably the least character of a character Eddie Murphy's ever played. Because even in, like, some of his bad movies, he tries at least to invent some weird new character or do another version. Like, this is not too long after um, The Nate Professor 2, The Clumps, where he didn't create all those characters for that movie, obviously. But he tried to put even more weird ideas into what, like, the Clump family was in that movie. And even though it doesn't work... It's at least like, no. oh, there's effort. It's just in the wrong direction. This is like, is this maybe the laziest, like, lack of a giving issue performance he's ever done? I'd say at least one of them, yeah. If, if not ever, I mean, it's it's up there. This is also around the time of, like, when we did our Eddie Murphy episode, we covered The Haunted Mansion, which came out, like, right after yeah. this movie. It feels more in line with that, where it's just like, oh, you, you really are just getting the paycheck and you don't give a shit. And it's like, yeah. on one hand, at that point, he'd been working for 20 years and was one of the biggest comedy stars ever. So it's just like, go ahead and earn that bag. But also, come on, man. <laughs> like, give me something. I'd rather watch Haunted Mansion over this any day. The Haunted Mansion had cool-looking, like, ghosts and mansion shit. Like, there was something yeah, there. Terrence Stamp walking around, spooky. I'll give it that. Yeah, sure, as opposed to in this movie. Like, it is such, like, I, I completely get why this movie was such an infamous disaster and a joke for so long. Because it feels like it's, like, you know, with some of these big bombs, infamous disasters, usually we can say, like, oh, there's something interesting or fascinating that just didn't work at all. And we can, like, look at it and be fascinating as an object. Versus, uh, this movie is just a time suck. It will waste your time totally. Because there is nothing there on, like, a sci-fi level, on a comedy level, on a movie making, like, look how big and lavish this production is level. <laughs> it is nothing for nobody. There's nothing here that makes me say... Yeah, this, you know, I mean, at least this worked, or, you know, the costuming, or the set design, or anything, yeah, no, no, none of it works. I mean, there's nothing here. This is barely a movie. It's definitely earned the hype of sort of its notoriety of just being dog shit. I mean, I'm surprised David Goyer doesn't have a writing credit on this. <laughs> Maybe some uncredited rewrites on some of those. He might. Right? It wouldn't surprise me. Him and Jonathan <laughs> Nolan somewhere. 
Right. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the thing is that like, this is probably the prime example to me of like, when you have one of these troubled productions where it's like, oh man, nothing's working. Um, the director and the main actor are not really working together. Like this is, we're just burning money to make this work. This is a lot of times what you get. It's just like a movie that is nothing to nobody. And it's just like, why did we sink all this money into this? What what has like Hollywood excess done for this, but just lose you even more money? It's just a giant crater for everybody involved. Yeah, which remember we also speaking of giant crater, get that really stupid scene of him jumping the moon crater. It's like that's why we're called whatever it was. Why smugglers are called whatever they are because they jump moon craters. You're like, oh, cool. And then you just get the cutaways to fucking John Cleese. I say, oh, not holy. I'm driving now. Great. Oh, oh, fucking hell. I'm sure shot on the green screen he literally has in his backyard. Like, he has literally a shed in his backyard where he'll shoot, like, commercials and shit. And oh, just, I'm sure like, it is. The yeah. yeah, it's 100% what it feels like. Um, It has about as much of that, you know, great wit that John Cleese is currently known for. Oh, yeah, he's a funny guy. So funny. So wonderful. Yep. And yep. he's just uh, talking about all those woke moralists that are making... <laughs> comedy a bad place for him now him and his 80 year old ass who can't come up with new bits i think he's like 92 or something like that maybe i don't know point is maybe retired (laughs) yeah maybe give it up yeah maybe you have enough money (laughs) he's got that pluto nash money no that's true that that pluto nash money all that money that i'm also pretty convinced that this is the movie that partially like started the campaign to get pluto like not named as a plan anymore i wouldn't be surprised they're like fuck that fuck this you're just a dwarf star (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we gave you that line, but Pluto Nash completely fucked it over for you, buddy. <laughs> you son of a bitch. You're out of here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But you can no longer work here. <laughs> but I've been a planet for 70 years. Get the fuck out. <laughs> Here's a gold watch. Go fuck yourself getting retirement, Pluto. You joined John Cleese in the retirement corner. <laughs> Here's a Casio and a $15 Starbucks card. Get the fuck out. <laughs> Adam, anything else to say about this very bad movie before we get to the very good one? Oh, God, no. No. Nothing. Literally nothing. Except for that last song. It's fucking... It's it's a jam. It's bussin'. They talk about getting crunk and, and whatever on the moon. Oh, my God. Also, like, we didn't mention much else about the music, but the music in this is also fucking awful. With, like, John Powell's score is very bad. But also, more crucially, the opening credits sequence is scored to a weird hip-hop remix of Blue Moon. And it's, like, disastrous. It's so early 2000s in the worst way. <laughs> it all sounds like jock jams. I like to move it, move it. Y'all ready for this? <laughs> they sound like Crazy Frog songs without that last filter yep. to make them sound like Crazy Frog. <laughs> yeah, Onyx did the whole soundtrack. <laughs> You can find it all on your early brick MP3 player circa 2002. Hell yeah. Uh, Fuck yeah. Cue it up on your Zunes. No, that's too advanced. Zune is way too advanced for this movie. That's true. (laughs) Way too technologically ahead of the times. Uh yeah, uh, fuck this movie. One of definitely one of the worst we ever talked about for this show, but also fits into like maybe more of like the forgettable thing. Because uh-huh. uh-huh. like uh, it's been about twenty four hours, and I'll probably forget this movie instantaneously after we're done talking about it. Yeah, me too, for sure. By the time I go to bed tonight, I'm gonna wake up and it's gonna be gone. It's like they did the reset button on me, like a fucking little boy in AI. Or it's like a memento where you have to look at your letterbox tattoos to remember yep. that you watched it. 
Yep. And I did. I tattooed Pluto Nash on my body. And Joey Pants was there. Don't believe his lies. <laughs> yep. Yep. Remember Teddy Figgis? Remember Teddy Figgis? You killed him. <laughs> All right. We got to get out of Pluto Nash country because we've got a real movie full of true adventure to talk about here with Back to the Future. Steven Spielberg presents Back to the Future, a Robert Zemeckis film. Marty leads an ordinary life. No McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. Well, history is going to change. And 1985 is not his year. But Dr. Brown is about to change all that. Are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? He's sending Marty 30 years back in time. Now, he's trapped in the past. This has got to be a dream. About to meet... Chocolate. ...his future father. And he's making an impression on his mother. It's an absolute dream. And only Dr. Brown can help him get back to the future. Michael J. Fox. Whoa, this is heavy. Christopher Lloyd. There's that word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? Back to the future. So, uh, Back to the Future came out July 3rd, 1985, from uh, director-slash-co-writer Robert Zemeckis, along with uh, Bob Gale. Um, and this movie is probably one you've all heard of. You've probably one you've seen many times before. You recognize, just like, you know, um, Marty, it's about your kids, 1.21 gigawatts, all those big things. But some of you might not be aware that this movie, despite being so beloved and so popular and so successful, uh, had a very troubled road to get actually getting made when did you become aware of sort of the rocky road of this movie like was it around the time you watched it like several years afterward yeah probably several years afterward like i mean i saw this movie when i was you know a kid you know it was such a huge huge fucking movie Uh, i wasn't aware until the sort of at least the beginning of the stuff behind it like the stolts of it all probably to like the mid 90s i think i was actually watching like a an Eric Stoltz movie, like some kind of wonderful or something like that. And somebody pointed it out to me or told me about it. I was like, what? No. Cause then, you know, back then it's not like I could go on the internet and look it up. It just had to take their word for it. But then, yeah, sure. Shit. And then you logged on to geo cities and you're like, it's all true. Got onto angel fire and started my own <laughs> blog about it. <laughs> for sure. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I wasn't aware until like, I even like, I watched this obviously, you know, long after it come out. And then I remember when I got the big, like, sort of, uh, I think it was the 20th anniversary, like, DVD collection that they had. And that had a treasure trove of, like, bonus material. And that's where I found out most of the stuff where, um, to at least truncate as much as possible this production history, even before what Adam is referencing, uh, this was originally developed for Columbia Pictures, uh, who had uh, worked with the two writers, uh, Zemeckis and Gale, on used cars. And they had made, like, used cars and I Want to Hold Your Hand, which were not huge successes. But, you know, they were still trying to make this particular movie, and they were trying to go to several different studios to pitch it. Like, 40 different studios. Any point. And all of them said, with Back to the Future, the original script, this is too tame, because this is in the area of, like, Porky's, and a lot, like, the uh, the Animal House kind of, like, copies that were just like, oh, you know, uh, teen movies have to be raunchy and sexual and wild, and this movie isn't really that. Why don't you pitch it to, like, Disney? And Disney took one look at that script, and they were like, the kid tries to fuck his mom? What's this incest stuff? Get out of here! Get out of our headquarters here! We can't have this in our midst. 
So eventually after, you know, uh, going around town, they went back to Steven Spielberg, who had produced their earlier movies, and offered to try and get this made after Columbia kind of uh, passed on it. But they were like, no, Steven, we want to try and make this work on our own. We want to try and do something else. And uh, during this time, Zemeckis had also made uh, Romancing the Stone on his own. You know, I can make a movie that's Steven, and it can be a success after our first ever movies bombed so much. So they finally got set up at Universal. And over there, there was a bunch of production stuff. Like, for example, Sid Sheinberg, who ran Universal, hated the title and was like, you should call it Spacemen from Pluto, which is the name of the comic that the kid is reading like at the very beginning when Marty goes back to 1955 and he's in that barn. The one kid is reading Spacemen from Pluto. He's like, that sounds like a sci-fi title. It sounds way better. And this is one of my favorite Steven Spielberg stories, where after getting this note from the head of the studio, this memo about this, Spielberg sent back another memo saying, Hey, Sid, thank you for your most humorous memo. We all got a big laugh out of it. Keep them coming. And it was never brought up again. I fucking love that story. <laughs> That's how big ballsy Steven Spielberg was. It's like, hey, you had the Universal. Good joke, right? That was a good joke. I was like, yeah, good joke. <laughs> but after that, like, production, you know, stuff happened. Finally, they tried to uh, get it cast with Michael J. Fox in the main role, but he was too busy doing family ties and the producers of family ties kind of hid the script from him. So he couldn't really uh, get a chance to leave shooting the show to do anything. And uh, so they ended up casting under the recommendation of Sid Sheinberg, once again, of Eric Stoltz, who had just recently finished shooting a mask and was sort of like an up and coming actor at this time. And they shot for five weeks with Eric Stoltz as Marty McFly. You know, and the thing is, uh, before we go further, uh, everybody picture Eric Stoltz. Redhead, Rocky Dennis, doesn't, doesn't look like Rocky Dennis. Well, yeah, right, redhead. right. More like a, a 10 years younger version of the guy from Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some kind of right. wonderful Eric Stoltz, you know? Right, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yes. Not funny. Never been funny. I mean, Pulp Fiction is kind of funny. He's getting his Frank and it, well, in so. Pulp Fiction, he's kind of funny. Yeah, right. I'll give you that. That's probably the funniest performance he's ever done. But historically, not a funny actor. Uh, so you kind of get, well, after going through dailies, that, uh, you know, the higher-ups were like, yeah, no, this isn't working. He's not funny. Right. And there hasn't been a lot of this footage, like, released, except for, like, during, like, behind-the-scenes documentaries you'll see. Or the diner scene. Footage. Right, you see the diner scene. Like, because they mostly shot, like, a lot of the stuff in the 50s, and I believe, like, the stuff at the Twin Pines Mall. That's what right, they had exactly. pretty much shot. Um, and a after five weeks, they were just like, no, this isn't working. This isn't doing too well. Even on set... Uh, Eric Stoltz was more of like a method actor type, so he would only be referred to as Marty, which caused clashes. Like, <laughs> like he's Daniel Bay-Lewis. Yep. Hell. I would recommend, there's plenty of great interviews with Tom uh, Thomas F. Wilson, who plays Biff, talking about this, where he went up to him just like, uh, hey, Eric, so I wanted to talk to you about the scene. It's like, excuse me, I, I prefer Marty. I'm, I'm in character here. It's like, okay, sure, Marty. Let's talk about the scene that we're going to do. Ugh. Right, right. So there's a lot of like that tension and awkwardness just didn't feel like it was clicking. And so I think only because Steven Spielberg was a producer on this, they went to Steven and were just like, I don't think this is working. He's like, I agree, it isn't working either. I'll convince the bigger ups that you have to like completely scrap five weeks worth of fucking shooting <laughs> to oh. try and get Michael J. Fox on board. And Fox was able to do this because like the producers on Family Ties were like, okay, we can let him do it. Our show takes precedent. You have to work around our schedule. So literally because it's like a sitcom, he would work on family ties from like about nine to five every day. 
And then after he would finish on Family Ties, he would nap in the van on the way over to the Universal lot. And then shoot from about 6 o'clock to like 3 or 4 in the morning. Then he would go back home, sleep for an hour, and then get ready for Family Ties. And he did that for weeks. That's fucking nuts. (laughs) That's fucking nuts, dude. Good God. Uh, But you know what, though, man? Say what you will, it it worked because Marty McFly is one of the most iconic characters of all time. You know, especially out of 80, 80 cinema. I mean, it, there's nobody else, honestly, that would have worked for Marty McFly but Michael J. Fox. No, really wouldn't. And I think that frassiness also really works for him because in the movie, he's just like constantly feels like he's in a daze, like he hasn't slept that much because he just traveled through time back to the 50s and he's experiencing this thing of like, my parents are younger and all this stuff. It's so weird. It fits kind of perfectly for him. That he's kind of like wired and frazzled and all over the place. Yet at the same time, he never feels like exhausted, like any human being would. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. But it'd be hard to. I mean, look at like... You know, Christopher Lloyd's kinetic performance and even Crispin Glover's performance in this. Like, there's so much going on. It's so many hammy, over-the-top performances, but they all work so well. There's, I mean, really, there's not a performance in this movie that I don't like. Um, there's not really a part of this movie I don't like. I think this is damn near a perfect movie, if not a perfect movie. Um, it, it, then that sort of alludes back to what we were talking about earlier with all the production issues that they had, all the doors slammed in their face, the five weeks shooting with an entirely different lead, Everything else, this horrible studio notes and all that, they still crafted a perfect movie. It's fucking crazy. Yeah, I, I think it is a real testament, especially that not only is like all of those like performances so great, but also this script is like one of the most perfect examples of how to like set up a script that is very much like it runs on clockwork and it's so perfectly constructed. Yet at the same time, it all feels so natural. Like there's not a moment of this movie where it feels like, oh, this is like constructed for like to get one from plot A to B, C, D. There's no bridge point in this movie where you feel like you got to suffer through this part to get to the next exciting part. Because like, unlike I say, a Pluto Nash, all the exposition and stuff comes from character interaction. That whole movie's a goddamn bridge point. Well, that's right. It's just a bridge to get from point A to B, which is beginning of the movie to end of it. Please leave the theater. (laughs) It's the bridge on the River Kwai. It's going to get blown the fuck up. (laughs) Well, at the very end of it, I did say madness. Yes, Yes, it stopped. Uh, But but yeah, with Back to the Future, like there is like I agree, no sort of like uh, you know the stuff you have to chew through necessarily because it is all done through great character stuff. Like even the scene where we get the DeLorean, like where we first see Doc Uh Brown and we first see the DeLorean. Like on paper, you could make that seem very dry and very expositional, but because it's this crazy Christopher Lloyd performance telling you about just like I get one point twenty one gigawatts of this and that, and there's all these other factors like that Marty has to shoot it and that Einstein is there and all these other elements that just distracts you from the fact that you're getting exposited anything. He sold a nuclear bomb to terrorists that was filled with pinball machine parts. Right. Like, you know, it's just this, like, wait a minute, what the fuck happened? What did he do? Because he, he stole their plutonium from them. Like, it's fucking crazy. It's crazy. But it works. It's so good. It's so good. There there are so many scenes in this movie that just stick in my head and always have ever since I first saw it. I mean, I still do the George McFly laugh when they're at the dinner table and they're talking to me. He just turns around and they're watching that whatever they're watching. I forget. I think it was. It's the Honeymooners because later on. It's yeah. Honeymooners because yeah, yeah, later yeah, on they right, watch exactly. the Honeymooners. Right. Yeah. The... Yeah. And he turns around and he's like, ah, ah, ah. 
turns right back to the screen. He's not even saying anything, but you know he's trying to talk through this ridiculous laugh. And the scene where Marty goes to Doc's house and he opens the door and, you know, Doc doesn't believe him in the past. And he tells him how he bumped his head. And he, the look on his on Chris Lloyd's face when he opens the door again fucking kills me every time. One of many great looks from Christopher Lloyd. Like, there's the... Christopher Lloyd steals the movie. There's no question. Well, I think what I like about this movie is that it doesn't feel like actually anybody steals necessarily because you mentioned, like, everybody feels like they fit despite the fact that they're so bizarre to certain degrees. Like, Crispin Glover is a great example where, like, and apparently he was another sort of person that they clashed with on set with, like, sort of his weird method acting well, stuff. Well, yeah, he's a he's an odd, he's an odd fella. Right, he's an odd fella. But at the same time, without, like, him being this odd, it wouldn't sell the danger necessarily of this work. No. Marty's got to get, like, him and Leah Thompson together. And it's like, how the fuck does that happen? How do you, how how do do you, you make that work? Right, right exactly. It sells the, especially hey, with... Hey, Biff, you get your damn hands off her. Do I really have to swear? Yes, Jesus Christ, George, swear. That's my favorite bit of Crispin Glover acting is not just the delivery on that line, but also his hand gesture, where it looks like he's so, like at, an, at a Strasbourg like acting class, just like yep. I think I should swear, <laughs> or even just the way that like when he wakes up after like the whole like pla- um, I'm an extraterrestrial from the planet Balkan thing. The next day, they cut to him running, and his shirt is like half tucked in, and he's mm-hmm. weird, like he's almost like falling over himself, and nearly gets hit by a car again. <laughs> it's just how have you functioned? And the principal hasn't aged, right? You know. That I forget that character actor's name, but I love him too. James Tolkien, yeah, he's amazing. oh so great, but so another. Great. Well, you mentioned that shout out to the fact that the um, old age makeup that we get earlier on in the movie is actually quite good by comparison to like we talk about that all the time how old age makeup like usually fails terribly. It's really solid here, even with like Christopher Lloyd. I always forget. That he, like, looks so much older when you see him initially, like, at the Twin Pines Mall. And then yeah. the, the contrast between him, like, when he's later on, he's like, look at me! I'm an old man! A portable television studio. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of, like, the Dick Smith era, like, Exorcist, Max von Sydow old age makeup. Where it's just subtle enough to where you're like, oh man, wow, that's really well done. Like, it's not overblown. He's not overly wrinkled. He doesn't look like Guy Pierce in Prometheus. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, he's got, they thinned his hair a little bit and dyed it and, you know, put some wrinkles on his, on game crow's feet. And it look, it works. It's super effective. Right. And it helps also that you have these actors, especially in like the larger, older makeup things happening, particularly Leah Thompson, who I think often gets undervalued when people talk about this movie, is oh, so fucking phenomenal. great from, like, the start where you see her, and she gives that whole monologue about just, like, well, if Grandpa hadn't hit him with this car, then this one, you wouldn't have been born, and I still remember him being there, and everything like that push-in on her. That's the scene that I was talking about earlier, though, where she's having this romantic sort of memory about George, and then it shows him, and he turns around, and he's just a buffoon. Right, and then she just sinks. She just yeah, sinks in her chair. And, out. and and that wonderful contrast between that like old bitter woman cut to like her as a like young horn dog, which I love that factor is like this she's like saying earlier, like, oh, I never chased boys. I was very good girl. Cut to her. She's like, she is so horny. Oh, she <laughs> is the- she is fixing to F. Uh, yeah, she is raring to go, man. Her hormones are firing on all cylinders. Right, which is obviously, like, with the nature of that sort of subplot between her and Marty, there's, like, so much right. potential ick, and the movie knows that, and there are so many and great it, it points that people react. It navigates it pretty well. 
Yeah. Right, and it navigates it pretty well, especially with, like, at the beginning when there's the whole thing about, like, oh, Calvin on your underwear and all that stuff. It's like, where, where are my pants? Uh, over there? On my hope chest? That's my favorite delivery phrase. Yeah. On my hope yeah. chest. It's mm-hmm. so funny. And then, like, the navigation, once again, of just, like, whenever, like, she, when she comes over um, to Doc's place and Doc is looking over, just like, oh, my fucking God. And circling <laughs> behind her. Right. Oh, it's so good. It's the looks out of his fucking face. It's so amazing. Right. But then and when she kisses, when she kisses him in the car, and he just he's like ah, flicks out, and she's drinking, and she's you know lighting lighting a joint. All he's like, "What are you doing?" Like you're it's his mom. I love that. Like, what the fuck are you doing? My mom's sitting here getting drunk and smoking, but before this dance, and she wants, to, and she's just super horned up. Like this is insanity. Right for me, and I'm in the car yeah, with for her. Me. And- but what's so perfect is, like, that simple, like, shot where, like, they do kiss, and the shot of, like, Leah Thompson rising up in, like, terror. And then right, because like, like, I feel like I'm kissing my brother. Right, but but she also says, like, I don't know if this makes any sense. But when right. I do this, like, it's where it's, like, this weird sort of cosmic time travel, like, science is what compelled her to him. And then realizing, oh, no, that's not what this was about. I'm so sorry. This is really bad. <laughs> Let's forget this ever happens. <laughs> Yep, not a fan of this. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. And right. of course, we again, Biff, maybe the quintessential perfect sort of high school movie bully. Well, especially just like a great comedy villain. Because like that's so hard to do with like comedies where sometimes you can get a comedic villain who goes too far into like the menacing range and isn't actually genuinely funny or too far into doofus to the point where there's no intimidation. Wilson just strikes that perfect balance to where whenever you see him around, you know he's a fucking moron, but at the same yeah. time he is big and intimidating and upsetting and you could easily beat both of their asses. Beat the shit out of him. But right. he's just an idiot. Right. Why don't you make like a tree and get the hell out of here? <laughs> You're like, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> it's so fucking good. Yeah, no, he's he's absolutely fantastic in it. And all three of them. I mean, I don't want to go too much into the sequels, but he's he's great in all of Well, everybody really is who returns is good in them. But yeah, there's just something about this movie, which is crazy because I'm not a, I'm not huge on part two. I really like part three. Uh, part two is good. It's not like, but I like part three more for some reason. Yeah, in that same camp. And we're in a lonely camp, and because everyone's bored. But 2015 in the, in the future, in the hoverboards, like, nah, man. All that about Mary Steenburgen. <laughs> Yeah, Hell give me yeah. that old school cowboy, you know, bad Irish accent. You know, give me all of that stuff. But um, no, it's just for them to take something like this that, like I said, had so much going against it. And just any other, I mean, really any other film that shot five weeks with a different actor. And if they, you know, the, the people making it like we got to recast, the studio would either say, no, you finished with what you got or we shut down. We cut our losses. And for that to have worked out and then to get something as great as this to not only be this good, but just totally just become part of the pop culture zeitgeist that it has, where it's still so fondly loved and remembered. I mean, you take anybody from, you know, my parents' age to your age and maybe even younger and show them a DeLorean, and they'd be like, oh, the Back to the Future car. Right, where it's gotten to the point where, like, even if a kid has not seen Back to the Future, they're like, oh, that's the car from the thing with, like, the, yeah, the old right, scientist. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the thing that Rick and Morty's making fun of. That's the thing. It's like, this movie's yeah. so big and massive that a dumb parody animation thing has become a pop culture phenomenon in of itself off the back of this movie. <laughs> 100%. 
and for them to get a very, very well done trilogy out of it. I mean, it, it's just uh, thank God they haven't redone really this yet. I, I, I do say yet, um, as if potentially it probably will happen eventually. But well, yeah, it's, a, it's very much a stipulation of like some Mac is just like you're not doing it as long as I'm alive. So. St- keep kicking. Make Pinocchios. I don't care. Just stay alive, Zemeckis. Keep staying alive. Live to 150. <laughs> Do it. There's Carl Urban from Port 2 following him around. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think also what's so interesting is just the fact that what we're talking about, where it's like it was so well put together. It was screened for Universal in like a work in progress kind of cut that was like basically they need to do like some of the sound mixing and the effects and stuff, finish that up. And they were the highest test scores Universal had ever gotten in their history to the degree that Universal was like, okay, we're not going to make this come out in August anymore. It's coming out in July now. So they had to work like around the clock to finish post-production to the point where this movie came out nine and a half weeks after it wrapped filming. That's the power of love, man. It don't take money. It don't take... Well, actually, it takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of money. So much money. (laughs) It takes a lot of money. He had fame, apparently. Right. (laughs) I love that even, like, the movie's so good that it also caused even more problems production-wise to get it finished in time. Although, I I will say, Marty McFly, would Johnny be good? Do you believe? (laughs) That's still kind of like, okay, Whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think with that, obviously, there's a lot of weird implications to that. But at the same time, in the universe of Back to the Future, Chuck Berry still invented Johnny B. Good originally. It's just that it almost feels like it's a satiric commentary that it's like, oh, Marty ends up technically creating this by being just like an asshole stealing the light. <laughs> Basically, like having a victory lap at the end of like, hey, my parents are back together. Let's celebrate, everybody. It, it becomes sort of like a weird part of like the satiric nature of this movie. That I think is why you can't really ever remake it in a successful way is because, like, the contrast between the 80s and the 50s is so, like, perfect that you can't really do that with, like, if they were to remake it right this minute, it would be to the 90s. There's not, like, the differences aren't that big beyond, like, surface level shit. As opposed to asshole Reagan era, like, 80s people to, like, 50s era where it's like, oh, everything's squeaky clean, but really we're kind of, like, dirty underneath at the same time. Like, that only works because of those specific two eras and the amount of change that happened in the 60s and 70s in between them. What happened in the 60s and 70s? Well, uh, first <laughs> we'll start with a little man named John F. Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> That's sweet. Actually, can you get... Can you, can, hey, by the way, Thomas, I brought a guest on to explain this for us. Everybody, Ken Burns. Oh, boy. This episode's <laughs> going to be five hours long. Yeah. Sit down, everybody. Hope you guys are ready. I got to do the sound effects. Ratatatatata. Kabloom. Peace, man. Vietnam has started. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a crook. <laughs> Come gather out. People down. Um, We're sending this know. tape to Ken Burns, right, to convince him to do it, right? This, this, this yeah, yeah. Happens. He's gonna show up in my house and punch me in the face. <laughs> and tell you about baseball for a while. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. No. They, I. Yeah. This movie wouldn't work now. What's gonna happen now? You're gonna get a kid from fucking 2022 with his fucking Oculus and all that shit. Like, I gotta go back to the future and show up in 1990. Like, what's aim? Wow. There's no huge discrepancy as far as 
I guess even like technology, clothing. I mean, there is some discrepancy with clothing and things like that. But from like the late 90s to now, if there's no huge leap right. like there was between the 50s to the mid 80s. Like we haven't had that. It's been a gradual increase in technology and sort of awful political climate and all that stuff. There hasn't been any fucking huge things other than like obviously COVID, 9-11, horrible things like that, but... Right, which would make this fun. So funny! What, what's so different about the future, son? Everything sucks. <laughs> it's like really <laughs> bad. You don't You see that Donald Trump guy in Home Alone 2? Well, I have a story yeah. for you about that guy. <laughs> Dad, throw your money into Johnson & Johnson. Trust me, your kids are going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry, Pfizer. It doesn't, who fucking cares? I don't think feasibly you could make this. The only way it could be done is maybe in television form where you're like Netflix miniseries form where you could still do it in this era, but then what's the point? They would try and do like a legacy sequel thing that's about like the oh, modern McFly's and they get fucking Christopher Lloyd to do it. Mm-hmm. And then it would just be like, oh, okay, that's what we're doing here. And be, what's like his fucking dark. name from Ready Player One as my McFly's son. Right, yeah, it would just be bad. <laughs> and just like, there's no real point yet. Because even whatever other also-rans have come out about this have been like cute and kitschy. Like the animated series where it's just like, oh, let's go to a different timeline. There's a biff from that particular past timeline or whatever. Or the Back to the Future ride. Which um, is amazing, obviously. It's one of the best uh, motion simulators of all time, RIP to a real one. But um, at the same time, like, it, that stuff is, like, cute and kitschy, but you can tell, like, the sort of main trilogy works so beautifully um, at just, like, getting you with this, like, original perfect movie and these fun sequels that just sort of, like, go into different divergent things where it's like, here's 2015, here's an alternate version, like, another angle of 1955, and then the Old West. And it's like, that's all you really need it's fine yeah where the where the hell are you gonna go like do you want to see marty in feudal japan <laughs> fight with the ninja turtles of course yeah know. 1942 poland like you don't want any of that like i really fuck? don't want that no <laughs> no but i'm saying period like the, there's no other fun point in time you're gonna send them to like if you want like i guess maybe woodstock but even then though the sort of implications of what's happening around the world during woodstock like it's just no, what we got is fine. I don't know. Maybe Marty should fight some dinosaurs, Adam. Prehistoric times. Let's do it. Open the door. Everybody do the dinosaur. <laughs> right, exactly. That's what we need. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so he wrote but, that song, too. Just as good as Johnny Be Good. Right, right. But, you know, to, to steer back to the original movie, something else I really want to mention is, like, with Zemeckis, who is a guy that, like, this is the movie that made his career. And the sort of weird run after this were some of these, like, fascinating, super technical movies like the Back to the Future sequels, but also Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the middle there, and Death Becomes Her, and then even to Forrest Gump. Like, that is such a fascinating run that is, like, so massive in the pop culture landscape. Those movies are so huge, big, and innovate so much. And what do you think he sort of loses after, like, that point, especially as of recent, where we're getting, like, him doing Pinocchio shit? What do you think sort of makes him lose his way as a director? Uh, he just needs, I don't think he needs money, but it seems like he doesn't really have a original voice anymore. Like, uh, I think Forrest Gump kind of is what did it. I mean, Forrest Gump was so fucking huge. I mean, and it's, oh god, I can't, we'll talk about it, maybe, I fucking hate that movie. But, I don't know, man. It feels like maybe ego got to him, and it feels like maybe like 
you know, studio told him, you made Forrest Gump. It's one of the, you know, everybody loves it, but you can make whatever you want, which. Well, well, even he had that by like Back to the Future. Back to the Future is like the guarantee, just like you could do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, but he was still doing it. He was still doing weird stuff. I think Forrest Gump was like, he started to get more commercial, started doing way well, more Well, I mean, even, because after, right after Forrest Gump, he also does, like, Contact and uh, Cast Away, oh. which are pretty great movies. I think it's more when you get into him doing the technology stuff, but really sacrificing the script is where it's like, I would say Polar Express is really what does it then. Polar Express and, like, that motion capture stuff that he did in, like, the 2000s, where it's just, like, it's all about, let me innovate this technology, as opposed to make a good fucking movie while I'm doing it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe. I still kind of liked Beowulf, uh, just because I like the, you know, the original story. But it's not that good. Yeah, I, I probably would like Beowulf more if everyone didn't look like they were dead inside. I think they look better than they do in Polar Express, for God's sakes. I don't think that excludes it from also looking like they're dead inside. I think all three of those, like, big Zemeckis motion You're capture You're dead inside! Well, yeah, I know that, but I'm not starring in a major motion picture, Adam. Where you should be, that'd give you a million dollars. I'm sure, look, secretly, I was the star of Mars Needs Moms, everybody. <laughs> look how well that did. You know, I thought so. I thought that was you. <laughs> yes. Um, but Adam, obviously, this is such a big movie, and we've talked a lot, but is there anything else you want to mention about Back to the Future? Any specific, like, shout-outs, details... We have mentioned before we get to final thoughts. I mean, they, there's so much, right? I mean, not only is it just one of those movies where you could sit here and do a quote-a-thon for, but it's also one of those movies that just, it feels like Back to the Future to me feels like it was Back to the Future and then like sort of the next big one that came out that made you feel the same way would be like Jurassic Park, where it felt like this like whoa like it's an experience movie like it's an exciting movie like you did nothing this could never exist except in the mo in the movies in the you know movies. this like yeah it's like vin diesel's dream you know what i mean him and nicole kidman's beautiful mission <laughs> yeah it, it's just one of those it's an experience film it, it truly it is it, it's one of those movies where you can watch sort of with any age as long as I can comprehend it, like I, my, I, my, my kid might be still a little too young, maybe like a year or two. I could show her this, and she would get fun out of it. She might get fun out of it now because there's like sort of manic performances, but it's one of those you can show to anybody really, and they, it's a sense of joy and you know, sort of wonderment and excitement. And this movie kind of has it all going for it. It's a perfect movie to experience either by yourself or with people, especially with other people. To where you could sit there and just laugh at it and joke about it. And then, you know, now that's on a home, home, you know, digital or Blu-ray or physical media, you can re videotapes or eight tracks or uh, laser discs. Cassette tapes. Yeah, you cassette can... tapes. <laughs> you can rewind a book on tape, audio books. Uh, you can rewind it and, you know, reverse it and rewatch these favorite scenes and then notice more things every time you watch it. This is one of those that every time you watch it, you're going to notice something new if you're really paying attention to it. Or it's one of those you can just have on in the background in a, if you're having a couple people over and you're they're shooting the shit. Back to the Future is a perfect movie to put on in the background as well. It's just, it's a perfect movie for sort of any situation that you want to watch a movie in. 
Well, I think also a big thing for me, having just, like, grown up with this movie as much as I have, is that, like, it's also a movie that works at various different age ranges. Like, I remember when I was younger and I first saw this, it was definitely more a thing of, like, oh, my God, is Marty going to get back? And, like, all the tension about, like, the very ending where it's, like, oh, my God, is, like, Doc going to, like, get the thing to work and everything? Where it's, like, it's almost like silent filmmaking, where you just see, like, the visual display of, like, oh, my God, is he going to, like, pull the thing? Oh, no, the thing fell over. Now he's got to go over down by the tree and, like, plug it back together. Like, it's such perfect suspenseful making that works even for like a kid and then as i got older i started just realizing like oh the satirical elements that are in here about like the 80s versus the 50s i know even some of these like jokes that are a bit more risque that are like underneath all this despite being like this family movie it's a movie that ages wonderfully because you can like watch this and have some of these fascinating admittedly some of these questionable things that we're kind of mentioning earlier like the the johnny Bugood. that just like is it's a fascinating thing where it's like oh how a movie has certain things that don't hold up as well but at the same time all the other ingredients still like have aged beautifully to where you can still watch and be like, oh, you know, stuff like the um, a, a detail I noticed this time I had never noticed before is that obviously in the 50s in the movie theater, they're showing the Ronald Reagan movie, uh, which, of course, is later called back to where they're like Ronald Reagan, the actor is president. But in the future, in the 1985, uh, the movie theater is a porn theater where they're showing a movie called Orgy American Style, <laughs> which one real movie two great title three one of the actors featured in that movie is george buck flower who is mainly known for playing like a bunch of homeless characters in various 80s movies including back to the future he plays red the homeless guy <laughs> wait 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 a minute yeah no so did, like was was george buck flower hanging dong in that movie I mean, it's a porn movie. I would only assume. I haven't seen the film myself. Well, Sylvester Stallone was technically in a porn movie, but he didn't hang dong. Yeah, that's true. We don't, we don't know necessarily if he hanged dong or not. We have not seen. If anyone else here has seen an orgy American. Give George Buckflower hang dong. <laughs> Please tell us. That feels great. <laughs> oh, no, I don't want that. Crazy drunk driver. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also another thing is, like, there's, like, no small part in this movie. Like, every bit player is fucking hysterical. Or, like, has some, like, uh, the the farmer guy, the Paul Peabody. Um, who did, did you recognize who that is from a horror movie that came out around this time? Oh, I did, and I forgot. Oh, fuck. He's the grandpa in Silent Night, Deadly Night. The yeah. best part of the movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes. It's the scariest goddamn night of the year. Yes, of course, for sure. Uh, but, but I mean, there's other people too, like uh, uh, Lorraine's mom and dad are great character actors. Like uh, Lorraine's mom is uh, Francis McCain from uh, Gremlins as well. Yep, um, and, yep. And all the fun stuff, but just like, uh, like, who the hell is John F. Kennedy? Or the like, oh, you know what, Lorraine, if you ever have a kid like that, I'll disown you. <laughs> it's, just, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just like thrown off, but it's wonderful. You better, get used, like, the, you, you better get used to these bars, kid. Yes, the small little details like that. But yeah, that's the thing. It's just that Back to the Future is such a well-made movie and so well-executed that even the smallest bit players get great bits and are, like, recognized forever because of it. They have, like, some kind of cultural impact despite the fact that they have, like, a couple lines. They're still part of, like, this big, massive movie that, uh, yeah, it's just, like, it's great. Hot take, like you mentioned, a perfect movie, pretty much. Yeah, I, 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 no, I think it is an absolute perfect movie. I mean, there might be, like you said, questionable things in it, but it doesn't detract away from the whole experience this movie is a five out of five ten out of ten perfect yeah and all despite the fact that it had such massive awful production problems that would sink any other movie immediately 
Uh, yeah, they managed to do all that. And also, just a shout out, um, make sure to try and watch and see if you can spot the few bits where Eric Stoltz's body is still visible. Like, any yep. points where there's, like, sort of the coverage where they focus on another actor, there's certain points where you can see, like, the jet black hair of Eric Stoltz, particularly, like, the bar confrontation after he runs into George for the first time. You see a lot of his head. Yeah, yeah, shot. definitely, definitely. For sure. But yes, everybody, that is the end of our discussion of our two movies, and uh, let's head into our weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double so the double redo is a segment that adam and i do every week in which we uh you know bring up a good and a bad movie related to the topic in question so uh, adam and i each have a good and a bad movie that had a troubled production in their own right uh, so I'll go ahead and go first with my choices here. Uh, my recommendation is one that I think has just gotten kind of lost to time over the last uh, decade since it originally came out. And admittingly, it sounded like a terrible idea when it was originally in production. Uh, I have the Fairly Brothers Three Stooges movie. Now I know you're all like, wait, Thomas, is that a good movie? Well, I would argue, despite the fact that the premise of the Fairly Brothers are doing a feature film version of the Three Stooges in 2012... Sounds like such a terrible idea, and especially the original production was trying to get uh, the three stars of um, Benicio Del Toro as Mo, um, <laughs> Sean Penn as Larry, and <laughs> a fat Jim Carrey who gained a lot of the weight for the movie um, to star in the feature film. Uh, that didn't end up happening, and the movie like languished for a while in production until they end up uh, putting it out with uh, Will Sasso as Curly, Christine Metopoulos as Mo, and Sean Hayes as Larry. Um, it, it still would sound like, okay, that doesn't sound like it'd be a good movie overall, Thomas, right? Um, I would honestly say yes. I think it's a surprisingly good little tribute to the Three Stooges. And I think it's mainly because you can tell, uh, that the Fairley brothers had their heart in the material. And also those three actors do a genuinely great job of both imitating those original performers, but also adding their own kind of like little bits and pieces in there and having a good chemistry with each other that really works, despite the fact that there's some questionable stuff, like there's the... It was advertised with, like, the dumb, like, uh, Jersey Shore cameo. It's a re That's, like, the biggest, worst sequence in that whole movie. It's bad and dumb. But there's a lot of, like, really fun-inspired Three Stooges-level bits that are, like, very funny, very well executed, lots of great sort of, like, comedic stunt performing that's in the middle there that especially is not as common in, say, 2012 or even post-2012. Um, and I would say it's, like, the best Fairly Brothers thing in quite a while when it came out. And also, I like it a hell of a lot more. Then after this, like, Peter went on to do, like, more uh, Movie 43, which you've talked about previously, and also Green Book. Um, I would have preferred if he did more, like, weird, fun shit like this. I vastly preferred. Uh, and then my bad pick is a much more recent movie that got a lot of controversy and hullabaloo about its varied reports of troubled production. Uh, but I have Don't Worry Darling, which, like, there was all this hullabaloo a couple months ago, when uh, right before it came out about, oh, there was, like, all these conflicts on set with Olivia Wilde and Florence Pugh um, on, because, like, she was, you know, trying to get uh, Harry Styles to be on a bit more and uh, was, like, leaving set to, like, make out with him and stuff like because she was a director and was in a relationship with Harry Styles. Um, and, like, all this stuff about, you know, Florence Pugh wouldn't do that much press and shit like that. And Shia LaBeouf also was originally cast in that part and all the back and forth about all that stuff. 
And I think the thing is, despite all that stuff about the Trump production and the varying reports, because a lot of people have denied, a lot of people have said it was true, it's like varying back and forth. Um, I think a lot of that was, it at least felt like it was overinflated to get some kind of interest in this very dull Stepford Wives style, like sci-fi thriller movie that I think wastes the talents of Pew, especially on her screen partner being Harry Styles, who, like, I have no real vested interest in that dude. I thought he was fine in Dunkirk. I've heard a couple One Direction songs. I have no ill or good feelings toward him going into this movie. He is objectively fucking terrible in this movie. I think he is very bad, especially against Pew, who was such a great actress in general. And just, it's so much of a movie about, like, oh, we're building up to, like, what's going on? What's all this stuff happening? Because it's, if you don't know, it's about, like, a bunch of people moving to, like, this 50s-era commune of sorts that's run by Chris Pine and there's all these questions of, like, why is, you know, when Florence Pugh and all the other ladies are at home being housewives, she keeps questioning, about like, wait, my reality's starting to break, and I'm starting to remember things I didn't, don't know if they're, like, repressed memories or not. It's so confusing, I don't know what's going on, am I going crazy? When you have all of that sort of buildup, and you have the ultimate conclusion this movie has, it's, um, fucking disastrous, quite frankly. Like, it's not the worst movie I've seen this year, but that ending ruins, like, whatever potential could have had in this, you know, sort of, like, sci-fi thriller conceived, like, what's going on? Uh, spoilers, what's going on is really fucking dumb. <laughs> it's bad, and I wouldn't recommend it. Okay, so I haven't seen either of yours. Uh, I've never watched The Three Stooges, uh, probably for a lot of the reasons you said why people would question you about it. And also, I am not a big uh, Will Sasso fan, and I'm also not a big, um, uh, I can't even remember his name, but the guy who plays Mo. Christine Montopoulos? Yeah, I never try to pronounce it. Because I know I'm going to fuck it up. But I'm not a fan of his, and I know it sounds silly, because of The Office. That is not his fault. That was such a dumb decision to, like, put it No, that's not his fault. It's a terrible decision. Terrible decision. But I've just, I mean, I like the Three Stooges and all, but it's never been, like, my, oh, I got to see a new Three Stooges thing. Like, it's okay. It's fine. I like the old ones. That's cool. And I'm good with that. Um, But, you know, my wife likes it, too. I've heard it. You know, you're not the only person. And I've heard who said it's actually pretty good. So, I mean, uh, maybe I'll check it out. Uh, I mean, why not? Uh, and don't worry, darling. No interest. I know how it ends uh, without seeing it. And, uh, yeah, that sounds like just a huge, like, oh, fuck you to the audience. Yep. Like, Really, really fucking dumb. <laughs> really fucking dumb. And I just, I don't care. I don't care. You know, the whole interest of that movie before all the controversy was, like, that they're doing sex scenes that are geared towards the pleasure of women. So you're like, oh, this could be cool. And then once all this shit came out about it, you're like, all right, never mind. And I don't mean cool on a pervy level. I mean cool as in, like, oh, like basic instinct type of idea where the sex was geared towards the women pleasure or whatever. Like, all right. And then you hear everything else around it. You're like, oh, no, this sounds terrible. Um, And, uh, yeah, big shocker that it's terrible. It would have probably worked a lot better if you didn't have, like, a particular, like, a human version of an inanimate object for Florence Pugh to get head from. As opposed to just, like, you might as well just use the yeah. vibrator. <laughs> There's yeah. nothing there. I will say Sign of the Times is a pretty fucking blasting-ass song. It's a good song. But I don't have to, yeah, eh, fuck him. Oh, my, also, hold on. One quick note. You mentioned songs, but don't worry, darling. A Suicide Squad level of, like, 50s pop songs. That's what I've heard. Movie. Where they go like back drops. to back, just like shaboom to this, mm-hmm. like as opposed to like Back to the Future did that like a couple times for their fifties stuff. Yeah, as opposed but to, not like, really. Right, a couple times as opposed to like every yeah. single second is filled with a fifties. <laughs> oh, sick! Can't wait to watch it. All right. <laughs> so, anyways, 
I don't mind. Uh, this is, you know, for the bad, I'll do my bad first. And uh, for my bad, it's one that I actually kind of like because of its fucked upness. But I know it's a bad movie. And I know everybody who's seen it is like, this movie is a fucked up mess. There's even a documentary about how fucking much of a mess this movie is. I have The Island of Dr. Moreau, the Marlon Brando Val Kilmer one. It's an insane movie. The story behind the making of it's even crazier. It doesn't work at all. But for some reason, that's why I like it, because it's this weird, like, what the fuck is this fever dream of a movie? Like, it's competently shot. The The practical effects are great. Marlon Brando is a, being fucking bizarre in it. But nothing else. Like, what is this? Why is this a thing? Why was there clearly this big of a budget behind it and they kept going? It's just crazy. But it's one of those that... Like I said, I'll watch it if it's on, but in full well knowing, like, this is a terrible film. Uh, I think I watch it because it's so terrible. And then for my good, uh, I, I had to really sort of figure this one out because I didn't want to do my alternate choice for the show, but I didn't want to do a new one that I just watched that I don't really had production problems, but it was just theatrical delayed by like eight years, it feels like. Uh, so I picked Coppola's Apocalypse Now. Also another Brando movie, but there were so many problems on this movie. I mean, over budget. Martin Sheen had a heart attack. Uh, Marlon Brando showed up like 80 pounds overweight, what they thought was going to happen. People were getting sick. People were dying. I mean, it's just crazy shit. But it comes out like this weird, psychedelic, dark, disturbing nightmare of a, a Vietnam movie. And man, I'm kind of here for it all the time. I mean, there there's so many quotable moments of this movie alone, like Robert Duvall, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. I mean, it's just one of those movies that it, it's sort of gotten the reputation or sort of the stamp of being a, an American epic film. And I think it's earned that. It's one of the, you know, I would take this over like even Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, things like that. I, I think this movie is just so fucking just, what a swing on this, and I, I think it's an in-the-park homer. Like, I, I really, really think it's a great movie. Uh, yeah, I have seen both of yours, including Island of Dr. Moreau. We did do previously on an episode of our show, uh, for, I believe it was about uh, films worth remaking. We did that with uh, Highlander. Holy shit, that was so long ago. Oh my yep, god. that was a while ago. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's an interesting movie, uh, and the story behind it, there's a lot of fascinating bits and pieces about it. And then uh, Apocalypse Now, I mean, there's not a lot to say, except, yeah, tremendous movie. It's one of those movies where definitely, like, you watch Heart of Darkness, the documentary about making that movie. And Great documentary. Right, where you see just all the weird, bizarre, fascinating turns it goes on. And it's definitely one example, one of those where I'm like, I'm glad no one else was, like, allowed to make a production like this wildly insane necessarily because there have been obviously like over budgets and all this other stuff since but not quite to that degree of that movie and i'm like i'm kind of glad no one's done that but at the same time i'm glad that at least that like this movie exists as like an example where it's like okay one person can do this where all these horrible production problems that are like massive giant happen and you can make this like fascinating messy bizarre movie out of it uh, but at the same time uh let's not do that again um, but yeah, and also it's interesting just even in terms of like the, the Coppola career trajectory where it's like after that and he's just like, I'm invincible. Then one from the heart happens and it's like, oh no, you are very vulnerable. <laughs> That's not going to work all the time, buddy. Woof. Woof. Oh yeah. Yeah. One from the heart, uh, kind of a mistake. Yeah. 
for many levels for sure. Uh, but let's go ahead and repeat our titles for everybody out there in case you missed them. Uh, for my good, I had The Three Stooges from 2012, and uh, my bad, I had Don't Worry Darling. And for my good, I had Apocalypse Now, and for my bad, I had The Island of Dr. Moreau, the Brando one. Yes, and uh, please submit your own double reviews to our various places for feedback, as uh, we'll detail before we get to our picking at the very end of the episode. Stay tuned for that uh, to hear what we're covering next week. But uh, until then, uh, let's do some thank yous. Like, uh, thanks to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water on various socials. That's night with a K, underscore of, underscore water to look at all of his great stuff out there. And thanks to our supporters on Patreon, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you get to vote in uh, polls where you get to decide topics and movies that we cover. And also listen to bonus podcasts we put out every month. And, uh, you know, speaking of polls, uh, we do have a poll that will be going up this week uh, where we have, uh, you know, a slot in December. We want you all to fill between uh, these two potential options. We have... Ensemble Casts, which is inspired by, you know, stuff like Babylon and the new Knives Out movie coming out. We were like, oh, how about movies with, like, big sort of ensembles and everybody kind of shares a, an equal amount of screen time kind of thing. Like, those kind of movies. That's one option. The other is Historical Fiction, which is inspired by uh, Pale Blue Eyes coming out, the Christian Bale movie, where he teams up with uh, uh, Dudley from the Harry Potter movies as Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, so we're like, okay, historical fiction movie. So basically, um, a sort of fictional story that involves like either real events or actual historical figures that pop up. And I'm pretty down for either of those, to be honest. Uh, I think there is, you know, not necessarily as much material to pull in historical fiction, but I think what's there could be great. And ensemble cast has been one we've had in the back pocket for quite a while. It's yeah, always been sort of like sure. a in case of need of topic break glass kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, now potentially it could, uh, you know, be the choice of the patrons. And then uh, us, the patrons will also get a chance uh, by the end of the month to hear our uh, monthly bonus podcast, where this time we're doing our show Telebillion, uh, which we, you know, do a rotation for the uh, bonus podcasts. And Telebillion is the one where Adam watches a show I recommend to him he's never seen before and vice versa. Uh, so he'll be watching the Nathan Fielder HBO Max show, The Rehearsal, while I'll be watching, uh, on his recommendation, Cobra Kai. Yeah. At least the first season, at least. Yeah, yeah. That's as far as you're going to get. Maybe not, though. Maybe not. You might love it. I'm, I am curious, because I did just rewatch all the Karate Kid movies in oh, prep for that, Adam. Yes, so I'll be, yes, I did. So I'll be uh, all prepped. Uh, but... You can, uh, you know, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. Uh, Twitter, of course, while it's still around as of right now. Um, it might be gone by the time this episode comes out based on recent news that Elon Musk has been fucking doing. Who knows? But in the event of that, we should announce, Adam, that uh, since the last episode came out, uh, we've created an Instagram. That's right. We have an Instagram now at DEDBpod as well. We'll share some stuff. Um, about the you know the show and some clips and photos and stuff related to, to all that. So you can find us as well at DEDBpod over there. Instagram? Well, let's wait till fucking Bezos buys it. No, don't <laughs> no, buy it, Jeff Bezos. Don't do that. Don't. No, no, no. Don't worry. That's owned by Facebook, so it's all in Zuckerberg's hands. So oh, then we're fine. We're, <laughs> we're fine. great. Yeah, we're, we're great. great. 
<laughs> for sure. Uh, but yeah, so you can follow us there. You can also submit feedback to us at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And for more of me, find me on Twitter, as of now, and Letterboxd at Not the Who's Tommy. And I also do some writing at marianitomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com. And you can also find me on Instagram on Atom or Adam, that's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. Or you can find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson, that's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And for more of our audio antics, uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, you want to listen to all the other great shows on the network. And uh, you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for several episodes before we even joined uh, Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't support us on the Patreon, that's cool. Money can always be tight. The completely free way to help us out, though, is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because it gets us more visibility in the algorithms. Yeah, now that we're on Instagram, we want to fucking see it thrown in your TikToks. <laughs> yes. Safe, we won't be joining right? that. We're both too old for TikTok. We're not doing that know. shit. I, I don't even know what it is. I just know it's people lip syncing. Right, and, and I'm just and I'm just like, is that like the vine? I remember yeah, the vine. I, I think, yeah. I, remember, I just want to like every time I watch, it, I'm expecting someone to go world star. <laughs> All these very relevant internet <laughs> references we're doing right here. I know, we're hip. And with it, yes. And yeah, we also know with... how to speak elite. <laughs> you are pteraxors. <laughs> and speaking of very relevant, our next week's topic. Uh, is one that's totally relevant on the kids' ears. Uh, it's, it'll be another one that we're revisiting for November. We're revisiting topics throughout the month. And uh, this one, it's not tied to anything that's like coming out or anything. We've just wanted to revisit this one for quite a while because it's tied to a production company. We devoted a whole episode to and We've covered several other uh, movies from this production company. We're devoting another episode to Canon Films, which I'm sure you're oh, very excited shit. about. I thought it was a vivid entertainment. I watched a ton of movies that didn't need to. Enjoyed it, but didn't need to. Well, while Adam reshuffles his choices, uh, I should mention that uh, at the end of every episode, Adam and I each uh, have either two good or two bad movies. We switch up on the quality, uh, and we assign numbers between 1 and 10 for each of our choices. And so uh, the other one, we'll pick a number between 1 and 10. So, for example, I'd say, like, ah, you know what, Adam, I'm going to pick number 6 for his bad choices. And um, he'll tell me, okay, that's close to number seven, which is this particular movie. And it'll be vice versa for my two good choices. I will pick the, t- the number and everything. But there is a little rule in here that at least applies to one of us called the Godfather rule, mm-hmm. where uh, we were both given vetoes around uh, the time of our anniversary back in May. And uh, we each had a single veto we have to use uh, before uh, next May uh, that uh, if we hear basically the choice that we end up picking, where it's like, oh, this is close to number seven, which is this movie. Uh, those of us who have a veto can say, actually, I'll take the cannoli if we don't want to cover that movie. Thus, we have to go with whatever other choices there. Uh, I say all this because I've already used my veto a couple episodes ago, so I do not have that power for Adam's bad choices. He does still have his veto, though, that he could use for my potential good choices. I do. I do. All right. I'm ready to pick. Are you ready to give? Uh, why, well, uh, yes, of course I am, Adam. Uh, and keep in mind also with canon, of course, good and bad are very relative. I think either way we'll be having yeah, a good yeah, time no. yeah, 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 with, right. the, with both great. of these movies to some degree. But yes, yeah, so for my two good choices, Adam, please pick a number between one and ten. Number eight. Okay. At number nine, I have a film that's divisible by nine. 
uh, because it's the third in a weird trilogy that isn't really a trilogy, uh, but it's an amazing movie. I can't wait to talk about it. here. I have Ninja 3, The Domination. Yes. Yes. Almost was one of my choices for bad. I mean, it, it could go in either way, but also it's so great regardless. It's either so way. fucking great. Obviously, I'm not taking the cannoli. I mean, it's great. No, for sure on that. Uh, But over at number three, I have one that actually got, like, a lot of critical praise, was nominated for a couple Oscars, sort of like the prestige pick of Mm -hmm. the various uh, canon films uh, that I haven't seen, but I've been dying to see ever since I heard about all that. I have Runaway Train. I haven't seen that either. But yeah, I've heard that's pretty great. Yeah, it got uh, Eric Roberts an Oscar nomination. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, don't worry. He's also got John Voight an Oscar nomination. That guy's oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> well, now Adam, it's time we did our picking for the bad side of things. Over yeah, on your end. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and go with number three. Okay, at number four, uh, because it is the fourth one. I have Superman four: The Quest for Peace. Oh, I figured. This is probably one of them. Hey, but you know you what? I'll at least tease my hot take. I don't think it's the worst Superman movie. Uh, but we'll leave it at that. It's we'll leave really it at that. bad. We'll uh, okay, all right. But uh, what was your alternate choice? Alternate number 10 is American Ninja 3 Blood Hunt. Oh, we could have had two Ninja 3s for the price of one. <laughs> yeah. But until next time, everybody. Uh, you know what? Uh, we got to get here. Adam, we have to go back to the future. Can we go back and, like, not have Pluto Nash be a movie?